0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, Journeying to the Promised Land. So join us by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verse four to nine, as we join Dr.
1: Newfeld now. I have a confession. I used to love to read John Grisham novels. I've read a whole awful lot of them. In one of his older ones entitled Testament, Grisham masterfully portrays a story of Rachel Lane. She's the illegitimate daughter of a billionaire who's committed suicide. The will left everything to Rachel Lane and bypassed the rest of the billionaire's greedy children. A law firm finds Rachel Lane in a remote jungle village in Brazil. She's become a missionary. Her conduct and her approach to life leaves lawyer Nate O'Reilly baffled. Rachel Lane is unaffected by the wealth that is being offered to her. In fact, the wealth is so large, O'Reilly tells her that she can use it to do anything she wants for the missions agency. But she's unmoved because she understands the seductive power of the money. Instead, she cares little about what will happen to the money or who will get it in the end. The only thing that motivates Rachel Lane is God's call on her life and her submission to that call. Well, in real life, there are precious few people like Rachel Lane. The old adage that everyone has their price is not true of everyone, but it is true for most. And that's why for those interesting folks who really don't have a price, well, their refusal to be tempted by the world's allurement seems impossible to others. But Hebrews 11.26 says of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And Hebrews 12.2 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Facing the shame of being crucified on a Roman cross, our Lord and Savior, we're told, despised that shame. That is, he found the rewards or punishments of this world to be no motivator at all. I mean, who acts that way? Well, it turns out that men and women of faith do, and they do it all the time. Now, we've been studying the life of Abraham, and he's very much like the pattern of all the people of faith. The call of God and the promise of eternal rewards is the story of his life. It's the motivation for everything. But the story of Abram differs from most of the contemporary stories of heroes that we're so comfortable with. In the Bible, Abram is presented as an imperfect man, filled with mistakes, moments of unbelief and failures. He receives a call of God, he responds well, and then stumbles badly out of the gate. At first, he made it as far as Haran, only to hear the call a second time and then take the wildest gamble of a lifetime, gambling everything he had on the faithfulness of the promises of God. I hope you'll find this series on the faith of Abram to be hopeful. In it, you'll find a man who is human and imperfect and tainted by human fears and human selfishness and even human sin. And that means that you and I can identify with him. You see, many of us have heard the call of God, and somehow, some of us have become sidetracked. We've wondered if we can ever recover the passion for Christ that we once had. Well, if that's you, take hope. The account of Abram can be life-transforming. I'm reading Genesis 12, 1 to 9. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forward from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The initial journey that Abram would have taken from Haran to Shechem, the place where he first arrived, would have been about 600 kilometers. It would have been an arduous undertaking. We know that Abram would have had with him 318 armed men prepared for battle. I suspect that the move involved well over a thousand people. That would have included the families of the armed men, servants who cooked, people who took care of cattle, and perhaps some who were merchants who were able to negotiate with the people that they met along the way. When such a people group moves through a given area, whoever is already there looks upon that entourage with no small amount of concern. And if they were to hear that this man believes that his God has given them their land, that knowledge could easily have sparked a war. So understand that Abram has not come heavily armed so that he might engage in war, but that he surely knows that his presence in the land could well spark one. On top of that, Abram had all manner of livestock, and livestock needed places to graze. They'd have constantly been looking for open land, and as it is with open land, one can never be sure of what kind of competition exists for it. How long would this journey take? Well, the absolute shortest would have been one month, but that's only if they drove the cattle very hard. I suspect it took him months, perhaps even the better part of a year, to stop and lodge, replenish his supplies, trade with merchants, ask questions about what they expected as they traveled, and then took the next leg of their journey. By the time he got to Shechem, there was no chance that he would ever turn around and go home. This was a major one-way voyage that could very easily end in disaster. But he'd heard the call of God and he'd believed. Now he was gambling everything that he had on the truthfulness of the promise of God. He's 75 years old and his wife is 65. He's arrived in Canaan to a culture and a people that he doesn't understand, looking for land that might feed his cattle and hoping that his large entourage would not be seen as a threat to existing warlords, for he had come on a sacred pilgrimage to start a new life. But where to settle down? Well, he has really no idea at all. The Bible tells us that the first stop in Canaan was in a city called Shechem. Shechem is located somewhere between the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Dead Sea in the south. The name actually means shoulder, and it's the shoulder of Mount Gerizim. Today, that same city is called by a different name. The name today is Nablus. The city today contains a refugee camp for misplaced Palestinians and has often been the site of extremism. It is in what we know today as the Palestinian-controlled territory of Israel. You know, Kathy and I have visited it, and, and when we visited an ancient place, we're often amazed that a city can remain in the same place for thousands of years. But in the time of Abram, it was a commercial center in Canaan because it was in the middle of a trade route. It traded in local grapes and olives and wheat, livestock and pottery. No doubt, with traders constantly passing through, this would have been the safest place for Abram to have traveled. He would not have seemed out of place. There would have been a lot of drinking water there, and it was natural for Abram to have gone there to water his flocks, and he would be looking for a large parcel of land to settle. But at Shechem, notice verse 6, there's a great oak, the Oak of Morah. That would mean that Abram would have traveled outside of Shechem, away from an urban center. The passage also says that the Canaanites were in the land, and that means that it would have been very difficult for Abram to find open farmland, that is, open land was already settled. But let's get back to the oak tree. The tree factors into the story. If we flip forward to Genesis 35, verse 4, we read in the text, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. You know, this is Abram's grandson, and so many years later, he buries idols at a terebinth tree there. Now, what kind of a tree is that? Well, a number of translations, terebinth is also translated as oak, and so it would seem that outside of Shechem is a tree that had a very important significance to the people that were living in the land. Now, let me take you to Joshua 24, verses 25 and 26, some five to 600 years after Abram. There we read, On that day Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them the decrees and laws, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. I suspect that this tree was a massive tree at the time of Abram and that the life of it must have been over a thousand years before it died. And because of its size and significance, it had become a religious shrine. Now, there are places all over the world where massive trees are considered places of religious significance, and I suspect that this is what this tree was. And that leads to a question. What is the relationship of Abram's faith to this pagan site?
0: Hey, this is Rika Seward, and I'll be joining Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. Join us for a week of laughter, inspirational music, worship and spiritual refreshment. This is a cruise for the entire family and beyond the incredible entertainment and amenities that the Oasis of the Seas provides, we'll have opportunity to enjoy all the activities available in ports of call, including Labadee, Jamaica and Cozumel. Are you looking for a winter escape? Join me, Rika Seward, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and the Laugh Again team for this incredible, fun filled journey and return refreshed and restored, both physically and spiritually. It's all happening this coming February 3rd to 10th, and space is limited. So call us today at 1 800 663 2425 or visit laughagain.ca.
1: When Abram entered Canaan and made his way to a commercial center in the new land, a place called Shechem, there he found a site where the Canaanites worshiped the gods and goddesses of fertility under massive trees. With its top reaching to the heavens, pagans would have imagined that such a tree was an axis between heaven and earth and that this was the place where the gods would reveal themselves. And it was at that very tree that we're told that the Lord revealed himself to Abram. Again, we need to ask, what is the relationship between Abram's understanding of the one true God that had first revealed himself in Ur of the Chaldeans and the polytheistic religions that he had grown up in? Did Abram know how to distinguish himself and his God from the religions around him? Now, there are those who read the beginnings of Genesis and will simply say that Abram was still a polytheist. Well, yes, he had a different God than others, but there were plenty of gods, and there is reason to believe that Abram was a monotheist at this point. Now, for that reason, it might seem strange for us to hear the Bible saying that the Lord revealed himself to Abram at that very tree. I mean, surely God was not presenting himself as just one of the gods of Canaan. What's more is that the site is said to be at Morah, a name which means teacher. Bruce Walkie feels that this was probably a pagan site for oracles in which pagan oracles from the gods were given to teach the Canaanites. This may have been a center for pagan instructions. I don't know if you feel this way, but let me try something out. Wouldn't you feel it was better if the Lord had revealed himself to Abram somewhere else? I mean, after all, this is an occultic tree, not a holy site, but a polluted site first encounter with God in the land of promise sounds wrong to us. And yet much later, during the time of Joshua, Israel used this very place as a place dedicated to the Lord. I mean, what do we make of that? Well, one solution might be to say that Abram's faith was in its infancy. He does not have the teaching of the later revelation about God. After all, it's only later when we come to to chapter 14 and Abram meets the priest from Jerusalem who is priest of God most high. This is clearly a monotheistic title that we see him allying himself strongly with monotheism. But in reading Abraham's account, there is no reason to think that Abram slowly embraced the idea of only one God. And besides, by the time we get to Joshua, and Israel is designating that site as holy, it's clear by then that monotheism was openly taught. Remember Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which is commonly called the Shema. It's repeated by the Jews, and it's from Moses, and it simply says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so we're left again to contemplate what Abram was doing at the Oak of Morah and why God chose to reveal himself there and not in another place. I think that in order to answer that question, we need to ask and answer another question. Consider Psalm 24, verse 1. There we read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. See, here's the question. Is there a part of this earth that does not belong to the Lord? See, I, for my part, love what the Dutch prime minister from the 1800s said about this matter. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And that, by the way, is exactly why Christians refuse to give ground to the enemy. I'm sometimes bemused at Christmas time when some argue that Christmas is actually a celebration in pagan roots. Now, I actually think that argument is false, but even letting it stand for the moment, what does that matter? What if the Christian faith simply took over a pagan festival in which the sun was urged to return and took it over Christ calling out, this is mine, and transformed it to make it a celebration of the light of Jesus who has come and shone in the world. You see, we should look for ways to redeem, for instance, Halloween. I see churches will often do a Halloween alternative, but what would it be if we were to celebrate on that day Christ's victory over the demons? And that's what I see when God called Abram and he appears to him at the oak tree that God has created. I mean, the oak tree that the pagans thought as a place for their gods, at that very tree, God reveals himself to him and tells him the truth. To your offspring, I will give this land. To put it another way, I own this land, and I own this tree, and I can give it to whomever I please. I think that encounter was meant to encourage Abram to help him not to feel overwhelmed and anxious and vulnerable when indeed he might have sung, this is my father's world. I I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees of skies and seas, his hands the wonders wrought. It's time for us to revel in this truth. And it is at the oak dedicated to the Canaanite religions, a place where the Canaanites heard oracles, where, where the Canaanites occupied the land. It is in that very place that the great God, God Most High, met Abram and said, This land is mine, and I will give it to your offspring. I hope you take this to heart. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Listen, people of God, the earth does not belong to dictators and presidents. It belongs to Christ's chosen people. Now, we're told that Abram built an altar there and that it's an altar to the Lord. It's his first marker in the land, and he believes that all things belong to God. Now, it's clear, however, that in the present hour, he can't remain in Shechem. There's no room for him to care for his livestock, and so he's forced to continue to move. He moves to what is called the hill country on the east of Bethel, where we're told he pitches his tent. The reason that's significant is because the hill country is less habitable. It would seem like the valleys were already occupied. It would not have been the best land, but it was land. And the text tells us he pitched his tent there. Now, up till now, we've never been told that Abraham pitched his tent, but here we're told that he does, meaning that for a brief period of time, he makes his home there. And because this is now his home, he then builds a second altar, and this altar is to be his permanent place of worship. From there, he sets out to explore the boundaries of the land. What does this place look like? What kind of land is God going to give him? Where is he going to feed his flocks? He goes south to the Negev, to the place where the fertile land meets the desert. And it's there at the desert where he encounters his first hardship. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me show you what all of this means. I have been saying that Abram's journey is very much like our own journey of faith. Like Abram, God calls us to follow him without revealing to us what we're going to encounter along the way. In Matthew 6, verse 34, Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So although Abram had obeyed God, counting on God's faithfulness, this does not mean that he would not face all the uncertainties and difficulties that are a part of every single human life. God's promises would come true, but God brings them to fruition on His timetable and not on ours. But in the meantime, we find Abram building altars, places of worship, and places where he can remember his encounter with God. This is so very important. I believe that every believer needs to remember those moments of encounter with God. Years ago, I heard a pastor encouraging his congregation always to remember what God had said in the mountaintop experiences and to hold them very dear when we're walking through the valley. For Abram, his first steps of faith seemed certain. He was a pilgrim in a country that was not yet his own, and that is precisely what we are today. We are, like our Father in the faith, on our way, and thus far the Lord has led us, and He will lead us all the way home. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the story of a man who followed you. We want to thank you that his story is not so unlike our own experience. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that that you have given us the sure and certain promises of a land that is not passing away. Help us, Lord, to see our life today as a journey through this land so that we might go to the land to which you have called us. And thank you, Heavenly Father, also that all that you have promised us is true. We're counting on it. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: John, thanks for your message today. I gotta to ask you a question, and I think I know the answer, but is there anything that God can't redeem?
1: Yeah, he just redeems everything. I it's amazing to me to think about this tree that we would have, you know, we would have avoided, say this is, you know, this is the place of the devil. And I, uh, you know, Abraham Kuyper, the, the the president of of Holland, said it so well. There's not an area of this earth that God does not call His own. So God redeems everything, and and we should not be hesitant even for a moment. Uh, to lay claim of everything that rightfully belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, so everything belongs to Him. So I mean, that's really our our calling as believers. Don't you think, Ben, that you know we're called upon to to look upon this earth and say it's my Father's world. And there it leaves us with uh, great hope, doesn't it? Because God can redeem us
0: regardless of where we are in our life.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, if you want an unclean place, it's the human heart, right? And the human heart, of course, is redeemed by the blood of Christ. God calls out also in the name of Christ, mine, when he took hold of you and I. Thanks so much,
0: John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's difficult to imagine what people you pass by every day may be experiencing in their lives. Many carry silent burden, pain, loss, and disappointment. Recently, we were given the opportunity to hear a powerful testimony of a young woman who had experienced the ultimate grief, the loss of a child. I was moved by the telling of her story, which we read at backtothebible.ca, and these words she spoke, my baby boy whom my body had grown and nourished for almost nine months whose entire future I had mapped out in my mind was gone in an instant. This is one of so many stories we're privileged to receive from our listeners, people experiencing pain and grief, but many whom discover new hope in the pages of God's Word. Thank you for the part you play in allowing the Bible to be taught through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. And please continue to support Bible teaching across our nation, teaching that brings a message of ultimate hope found in Jesus. And if you haven't already asked for our free 2019 Scripture Calendar, Bringing the Nation Back to the Bible, please call and ask for it as our gift to you today. Remember, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.